guys, and welcome to the Defending Christianity podcast. You can probably guess what we'll be doing, defending Christianity. While looking at different arguments that try to disprove Christianity, our goal is to look at the evidence that supports the claim of Christianity that our argument is targeting. Join me as we discuss from a skeptical perspective how Jesus is who he says he is and how God includes you in his redemptive plan for humanity. I'm your host, Levi Dade, and this is the Defending Christianity podcast. Enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to Defending Christianity Podcast, where we discuss evidence for Christianity in the context of skepticism. Last time we discussed why Jesus is necessary for heaven, where Dr. Richard Howe was with us. And today we have Mr. Michael Jones from Inspiring Philosophy. Inspiring Philosophy is a nonprofit organization founded by Michael Jones himself, and it's primarily dedicated to research in the fields of philosophy, history, and science to uncover deep philosophical questions relating to the universe and our individual perception of life. On the website of Inspiring Philosophy, you can find many discussions on numerous topics, such as arguments for God's existence, evolution, and genesis, and all about the Christian faith from a philosophical point of view. I recommend going and checking it out because it provides answers for many of life's greatest questions. Our topic of discussion today has to do with alleged contradictions throughout the Bible. For the sake of time, we'll only discuss two. A contradiction between Matthew 1.16 and Luke 3.23, and another between Matthew 1.17 and Luke 3.23-38. On top of that, we're going to discuss exactly what we mean by contradictions throughout the Bible and whether or not those contradictions are real or if there's something else going on here throughout the Bible. We will also discuss eyewitness accounts in relation to the Gospels and how they seem to have contradictions throughout all four books. This is an episode that I've really been uh, looking forward to do because it's a major objection to the integrity of the Bible. And it seems to be a reason why many people are not um, willing to accept what the Gospels have to say to us and, and about how Jesus is depicted throughout the Gospels. But the main thing I really want to answer today is whether or not, if there are contradictions in the Bible, no matter how minor it is, does that affect what the Bible says? Does it affect the core outline and the narrative that we find throughout the Bible? Does that affect anything at all? Um, Does it affect the theological teachings of the Bible or the doctrine? That's the main thing that we want to answer today. And, And I'm going to leave that answer up to you individually to figure that out. But just remember to follow the evidence wherever it leads. Follow the argument wherever it leads. Also, be sure to go back on Facebook and Instagram and follow the Defending Christianity Podcast social media pages so that you can keep up with what's happening in the future as well. So with that, here is Mr. Michael Jones himself discussing alleged Bible contradictions throughout the Bible. Here we go. Well, thank you for being here with us today, Mr. Jones. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into apologetics and philosophy. Uh, well, I've always been interested in these type of questions. It's just always been just who I am, I guess. Uh, so it's just been developed just out of just questions when I was younger, trying to figure out if Christianity was true, not being Christian for a certain number of years, and then eventually coming back and then going through several phases as well. So I guess it's just a part of who I am, and I've always wanted to answer a lot of these types of questions. So since we know that the Bible doesn't contradict itself, at least in its theological sense, how would you define what a Bible contradiction is? Well, yeah, I would agree it doesn't contradict itself theologically, but a lot Bible contradictions would essentially be that one author says X, but another author says Y, and those two X and Y are incompatible, therefore there's a problem. So you could think of like um, in 
for example, Second Samuel, uh, the angel of the Lord comes to David and offers him, you know, you can have three options here, uh, three years of this, or, or uh, three months of this, or three days of this. Uh, if you read the same count in Chronicles, the numbers are a little different. I believe it's like three days of this, three months of this, or seven years. So you have basically the same account, and the numbers might be slightly off. Now, most scholars look at something like that, and they go, well, probably a later scribe just wrote down the wrong number. Not a big deal. Uh, but So that's going to be essentially like a very minor contradiction you might come across. Okay. So when a skeptic who doesn't have a high regard for scripture or Christianity and who in some cases might even be anti-Christianity, how would you best, I guess, give a case for that kind of contradiction that's kind of just, you know, an error in the way that the scribe wrote it, whereas a scholar would kind of use that as a way to say the Bible isn't reliable at all? Well, I mean, first of all, to say it's not reliable reliable at all would be a total conjecture. Uh, Just because because there might be one error here, that doesn't mean the whole account is unreliable. For example, Josephus might be off by 10 years when he talks about when Herod received his, uh, his kingdom. He says it was at like age 15. Most scholars think it was actually when Herod was 25, based on other pieces of data. Now, that doesn't mean all of Josephus is wrong. That would be absurd. That would throw out so much of ancient history. Uh, same with other accounts as well. I mean, the Ides of March, for example, when Julius Caesar was assassinated. Uh, there's contradictions between Suetonius, Plutarch, and a lot of the other accounts as well. Some of the some of the lives that Plutarch talks about, he covers the Ides of March in different lives. Some of those don't even line up exactly. So you know, what's going on there? That does not mean everything in those works is unreliable. Now, I think what they're going on is that there's a lot of very fringe fundamentalist type Christians who take this to the extreme and they say, well, the Bible is, you know, the word of God there. It has to be perfect in every possible way. So they do that and that sets up an extremely high standard. And so skeptics think if they can find just one thing, that means the whole thing can be thrown out. It's it's wrong in every way. Scholars in the middle that are Christian from uh, Michael Kona to Craig Keener, uh, Dan Wallace, don't take this extreme fundamentalist view. They're more likely to say, let's just treat the Bible like we treat other ancient works. Uh, it's reliable in that regard. It gives us a lot of reliable information about early Christianity, about what they believed, about what Jesus said and did. And so with that understanding in mind, uh, you don't really have to take the extreme fundamentalist view. So when someone brings up a contradiction to me, if what I want to do is I want to try to treat the Bible like I treat other ancient works. So I'll start looking at that alleged contradiction in light of the cultural context, uh, how ancient Greco-Roman biographies were written. Specifically, I'm talking about the Gospels, of course, but I'll talk about uh, how there was different themes, different uses in there. For example, think of the chronology between some of the Gospels. Sometimes Matthew and Mark will disagree on which came first. Did Jesus heal this person first before he went into this town? Uh, There's a discrepancy with regards to a healing at outside of Jericho. Also, there's a discrepancy in the chronology, like when Jesus allegedly cursed the fig tree. Wasn't there one when no, he was um, tempted in the desert? The, the accounts give two different orders of those temptations, correct? Correct. Now, though, a lot of those contradictions, alleged contradictions, are easily sorted out by noting that ancient Greco-Roman biographers did not have to write in a chronological aspect of it all. They could write topographically. They could rearrange material to help their story flow better. So they may decide that, you know, I want to put this healing before he goes into Jericho, or I want to put this healing 
after he goes into Jericho for whatever reasons they may have. It may also be that uh, they just simply, the, you know, it, the chronology was not necessarily important to them. For example, if I told you that last year I went to my brother's wedding, I could describe the events like, you know, they were married, uh, they gave their vows, uh, there was some dancing, they cut the cake, uh, and then, you know, there was some partying going on. What I just told you was not the chronological order, obviously not. I was just giving you kind of a rough uh, overview of things that have happened. Likewise, in ancient Greco-Roman biographies, you don't have to write necessarily in chronological order. You can rearrange events and write in a topographical fashion. So a lot of these alleged contradictions can easily be sorted out by noting that they weren't beholded, they weren't beheld to strict chronological writing in the way they were in the in the way they were working. They could rearrange events. Uh, for example, I think John, for example, he puts the um, cleansing of the temple early in Jesus's ministry instead of later, right before his crucifixion. And I think he's doing that on purpose for theological reasons. John is very much writing in a topographical fashion, not necessarily a chrono uh, chronological fashion. And so we need to make clear a big distinction here because some people would maybe object that doing that could be misleading to the reader and be maybe used for maybe not intentionally or, or unintentionally. Either way, it could be used to be uh, deceitful. Um, and, but that's not the idea that is the case. That's not the case at all. It's just not what we're used to. Right. It's, it's first of all, it's taking your own modern Western standards enforcing it on an ancient culture that didn't put a lot of emphasis on chronology. They were more important. What was more important to them was the events and the theological importance of them. So which came first, you know, that wasn't really important to them. They may list events in some sections about what was the more important aspect of this event. It was more important for this healing to take place or it was more important for him to curse the fig tree here before we go. You know, to them, it was more important. They weren't thinking about in modern Western terms, in terms of chronology, they were more about thinking about how to arrange a good story. And it's well within the, uh, the boundaries of ancient Greco-Roman biographies to reorganize things, to make a more coherent and efficient story for your readers. Uh, that was just expected. You would be expected to do that kind of stuff in order to tell a better story. So if Matthew thought he could maybe put this healing before this event or maybe put it a little bit later or John thought he wanted to mention the, the, the cleansing of the temple early on, no one would be like, well, wait a minute, which came first? You know, th that would not be a question they'd be asking in the ancient world. Uh, they would have known that they would have said, well, these events happen uh, regardless of what order they happened in. That's not really what's important. What's important is, they did, is that they did happen. And what are we supposed to draw from these events? Yeah, I've heard it best, or not best, maybe said, but really helped me understand that is uh, in the documentary, The God Who Speaks, which I've talked a little bit about in previous episodes with Richard Howe. Uh, ben Witherington III says something to the extent of, in this context of what we're talking about, these these authors in, in this culture, in this time, their issue was characterization. Who is this person um, as presented by his words and his deeds? Basically, right. 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 And, you know, a lot of biographers can do similar things. They can talk about George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, and they're more about trying to write in a biography about his character. And if they're going to focus on that, they're not going to necessarily write. And then on April 2nd, he did this. And then on April 3rd, he did this. They might jump around to different points in their life to talk about these aspects of character. And we would read that today and not even blink an eye. Like, OK, yeah, I get their point. But when it comes to the Gospels, it's all of a sudden a problem for some odd reason.
<laughs> yeah, what's so interesting is that each gospel author wrote uh, to portray a different angle of Jesus each time. It's not as if John's basic theme is that Jesus is the true and better temple is contradictory with uh, Matthew's, which is that he's the, the better Torah or he's the real fulfillment of Israel. They're not incompatible, but they actually complement each other. They're all complementary for each other. Right. For us to see who Jesus actually is better. Right. And yet you will see that in a lot of Plutarch's lives as well. You'll see different aspects depending on which life uh, he's writing about. You'll see different character flaws or different character aspects. Awesome. Well, to get into the two that we have today, I'm just going to jump into the first one is Matthew 1.16 and Luke 3.23. Matthew 1.16, Jacob was Joseph's father. This is in the genealogy of Jesus. Okay. Luke 3.23 says that Heli was Joseph's father. This is something that's always confused me as well, and I've always had a question about. And so I was just wondering, how can we understand what they're really saying? Yeah, so the, the easiest way that you can get around this is just by pointing out that one genealogy is tracing the line through Joseph, and one is tracing the line through Mary's father, who was Heli. Uh, this seems to be supported in both accounts. Matthew's uh, birth narrative is really focusing on Joseph. Uh, the dream, Joseph, in Matthew's account, we hear about the angel appearing to Joseph. Whereas in Luke, we hear about the angel appearing to Mary. Luke gives us more information about Mary. Matthew gives us more information about Joseph. So they're probably just citing genealogies of different family line. You know, one is going through his mother's father. One is going through Joseph, his adoptive father. Now, skeptics usually don't push back against that, and they'll try to argue that, you know, that, well, there is overlap at one point. So, for example, if you read both genealogies, right in the middle of both of them, they have an agreement point. They say um, Zerubbabel was a Shealtiel. Shealtiel is the first descendant after the Babylonian exile. Shealtiel and Zerubbabel both show up in the um, genealogies of Matthew and Luke. So there's overlap in between both genealogies. So skeptics will say, you know, if they're citing different lines, Mary and Joseph's line, why is there overlap at some point? Well, we need to look back at the cultural context of what's going on around this time period. One thing we need to note is Shealt is in Matthew's genealogy. He's probably citing legal descendants. These are not necessarily going to be direct biological descendants every time. For example, so if you go to Matthew's genealogy, you'll see, you'll read this. And after the de deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of so-and-so-and-so-and-so. Well, seems pretty clear cut. But if you go to 1 Chronicles 3, 19, what we see is that Zerubbabel was actually the son of someone named Padea. So another little change that's going on there. And Padea was actually the brother of Shealtiel. So... Just to recap so we don't get confused, Matthew says Shealtel, Zerubbabel. Chronicles says Shealtel, his brother Padea, and Padea was the father of Zerubbabel. So what's going on here? Well, what we know from some of the Babylonian work is that when Judah was taken into exile, the sons of the king, Jeconiah, were made, unit, made into eunuchs. So they couldn't have any children. So Jeconiah's son, Shealtel, probably couldn't have any uh, biological descendants. However, one of his brothers, who may not have been made a eunuch, uh, Padea, uh, would have had sons, and that would have been the legal heir of Shealtel. In ancient Israel, it was very important for people to have heirs, even if they were not necessarily a biological son. You could have an heir by proxy. 
You could have a legal heir, someone you adopted. You could have an heir that was your brother's like son or whatnot. Uh, so there's all these different ways to have an heir. So what's probably going on in a lot of these genealogies is legal heirs being passed down. Uh, Luke is probably trying to hold as closest as he can to the biological descendancy going back all the way to Adam. Uh, but at the same time, during the Babylonian exile, a lot of people died. Uh, some were made in the eunuchs. People would have been cr- trying to get heirs left and right. So there would have been crossover, but may not have been necessarily biological direct connections. It could have been legal connections. So what is probably most likely in these genealogies is Luke is going to cite the genealogy he's getting from Mary's side of the family. Hence, most of his information is coming from Mary. They're going to give this sedentary. Uh, Matthew is going to cite what he's getting from Joseph's side of the family, going back to Moses. So that's the easiest way to sort that out, and that's pretty much acceptable for most scholars. I don't really see this as a huge issue because you technically have two parents. Now, to bring this all back around to the main point, skeptics get mad because they would say things, something like, well, they wouldn't, they wouldn't say that Joseph was the son of Mary's father. But as you can see, as I was talking about this example with Zerubbabel and Shealtiel, legal heirs pop up in the genealogies all the time. So uh, Joseph would have likewise been the legal heir of Heli, who could have just easily been the father of Mary. That's not a big issue at all. So like with, with this contradiction, can we get answers for most of the contradictions like that? I mean, where it's just like not, okay, he may have done this or they may have done that, where it's like we don't know for sure? Or can we get back to what is historically viable proof and fact, just like this one? Yeah, I, I think so. I think if we compare it to other ancient works, it's very easy to... Historians in those works will tend to harmonize the accounts. They won't tend to look for contradictions. And so it, it, it employs something called the principle of charity. There's a way that two accounts, they seem like they contradict, but there's a way to harmonize them and make them work. Let's just go with that to be fair. So take, it, take for example, the account of Polybius talks about how when Hannibal crossed the Alps. Livy, who came, comes later, also talks about when Hannibal crossed the Alps. Now, there are differences in between these different accounts. Uh, so, for example, Polybius and Livy both talk about it at one point. Hannibal, before he crosses the Alps, encounters this tribe called the, Al- the Alabroge tribe. Um, he settles a dispute among them, and then he goes on the merry way. Now, in Polybius, the Allobroges come back, and they decide to do sneak attacks on Hannibal. However, in Livy, you don't hear about the Allobroges anymore. Uh, all you hear is that uh, he was, uh, Hannibal was attacked by just Gallic inhabitants or Gallic inhabitants within the Alps. He never mentions the Allobroges again, unlike Polybius. So, easy way to harmonize this is Livy just doesn't mention that the Allobroges were part of the Gallic inhabitants that were attacking Hannibal, whereas Polybius... Uh, specifically mentions them. Okay, there's an easy way to harmonize that. There's no reason to assume an error there. Uh, one point, Olivi says that Hannibal got to the Rhone in the Is the Isacaris River. Polybius says that Hannibal got to the Rhone in the Isacaris River. Well, Livy says he got to the Sara in the Rhone River. Well, what's what's likely? Well, the Isacaris and Sara are probably the same name, or probably different names for the same river. Easy way to harmonize that. Oh, Isacaris might be an earlier name. Sara might be a later name. Or they could be different names depending on uh, different cultures, different areas, and how they would refer to those rivers. Easy way to harmonize it. When it comes to the Gospels, that should be the, stat, that should be the, uh, the standard practice. If there's a way to harmonize them, then we should. We should not assume error. Let's look for how these things could possibly work. Let's not just jump 
to the idea they're an error and assume that they're guilty until proven innocent. Yeah, for sure. I've also heard that just because something isn't directly said or affirmed doesn't make it a denial either. And so I right. think that's something whenever we see that, we just kind of jump to that denial. Oh, they left out Jesus's name there. So they're denying Jesus's deity. This is something I think in First Timothy. Well, um, think of one of the most ridiculous ones is that how many women went to the tomb? I mean, I hear this one all the time. I mean, John says there was only one. No. John spotlights Mary Magdalene, but notice that when Mary Magdalene runs back to the disciples, she says, we cannot find the body. Okay, she's probably not referring to herself as a royal plural. She's probably referring to the fact that there was other women with her. John just decides to spotlight her. Luke mentions there was a, some women and then an untold number. And then people go to Matthew and Luke and they say, well, Matthew only mentions these names, but Mark only mentions these names. Okay, they're probably spotlighting. We see this in other ancient accounts. So, for example, if you go to like uh, Plutarch, Plutarch's lives, in his life of Cicero, it's Crassus, Marcellus, and Metellus that visit Cicero tonight, warning about a plan uh, for insurrection. But in the life of Crassus, Plutarch only says that Crassus went to visit Cicero. He doesn't mention the other two. In the life of Caesar, it's Cato and Catullus that oppose Caesar during a proposal to the Senate. But in the life of Cato, uh, Catalyst is not mentioned. It only mentions that Cato is opposing Caesar. Now, are these contradictions? No, that's absurd. What is happening is an ancient practice known as spotlighting. You're just spotlighting certain people to highlight them. Matthew spot spotlights some of the women. John spotlights Mary Magdalene. Or, and Mark spotlights some of the women. That's just a normal ancient Near Eastern practice, especially in Greco-Roman biographies. So I don't really see that as a contradiction because <laughs> none of them say these are the only women who went to the tomb. But again, for some reason, this is a big problem. You see skeptics throwing around the internet left and right. But when you compare it to like Plutarch's lives, it happens all quite often. And that doesn't really appear to be contradictions. It appears to be spotlighting. It's very interesting. I kind of was thinking back in like high school, whenever I'd be at like a birthday party or something, my mom would be like, well, who all was there? I would only really tell the people who are meaningful or significant in my life, my best friends, <laughs> people who I, I've never talked to at school and they were there. I'm not going to just mention them because they have no, I guess, relation to me or meaning in my life in that kind of way. And so I will just, everybody that she knows, people that I know or close to, like, but it doesn't mean that I lied to her per se. Right. And we do it today. You're absolutely right. We do it today. No one jumps and says, oh, you're contradicting. No, it's spotlighting. That's just normal human practices, even extended beyond Greco-Roman biographies. But once again, it's only a problem when it comes to the Gospels. This is why when I'm reading, I just read Craig Keener's book, Christ a Biography, which is a great book. I think every Christian should read it. He is just randomly throughout the book. He just quotes, he just notes about the extreme skepticism applied to the gospels. You don't find in other ancient works. And he's just like, what is wrong? He's like basically in a nutshell, he's saying like, what is wrong with these people? Like they're applying these unbelievable double standard to the Bible. They don't apply to the ancient works. Daryl Bach says the same thing. Uh, so does um, Dan Wallace at times. I mean, a lot of, conservative scholars who are trying to say, let's treat the Bible and the Gospels like we treat other ancient works are constantly pointing out the double standard always applied to the Gospels, not applied elsewhere. Daryl Bach actually said that in uh, our episode with him where, where I, we talked about the reliability of the Gospels. So, so it's really interesting that, that you bring that up and that you kind of support that as well. So just to move forward for, for the sake of time with um, the same passages in Matthew 117, there are 
48 gen generations of David to Jesus. And in Luke 3, 23 through 38, there were only 43. What do scholars say about that in terms of contradicting and how can we respond to it? So the one thing we need to remember is that Matthew is trying to be very theological with his genealogy. Um, and there are gaps in genealogies. There's gaps all the time in genealogies. Uh, for example, Richard Hess recently wrote a paper on Genesis 11. He notes there are probably gaps in the genealogy, specifically of Genesis 11, in between Arphaxod and his descendants. So genealogies always have a gaps in them. A very good example is go to both genealogies. It says that Sa Salmon was the father of Boaz. Now, if you go and you look in the, in the Old Testament where these people showed up, there's a big gap between them. Uh, Salmon is the guy who marries Rahab. Uh, that was at during Jericho, when Jericho fell. Boaz is the great-grandfather of David, and is also the one who married Ruth. Okay, if you're going to take... Now, there are some scholars who say Judges period is 300 years long. Like I agree with that thing. I think Judges is a long time period. There's no way there's a direct descendancy there. If you go with like what Kenneth Kitchen and James Hoffmeyer argue, you take a shorter version of Judges. It was only about 200 years. That's still pretty hard to get because David is born around the year 1000. Okay, his great-grandfather is Boaz. Allegedly, if it's a direct descendancy, his great-great-grandfather updated is supposed to be Salmon. Now, Salmon, that's five generations. I know in my own family history, my great-great-grandfather, Arthur Wilson Jones, was born about 100 years before me. Okay, that's not 200 years if, if you're going on the very on the late date of Judges and the, 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 the trying to squeeze it into 200 years. It's going to be very hard to get there. So most scholars will look at that and just go, well, just a gap. It's talking about how Boaz was the descendant of Salmon, even though there were other generations between them. That's probably the same thing going on in the genealogies of Matthew 1, Luke 3. In fact, we can kind of see that in Matthew 1. I mean, he leaves out, he leaves out other gaps in regards to the kings of Israel at one point. He duplicates a generation uh, uh, to get to divide it into three perfect sets of 14. So you have 14 from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, 14 from the exile to Jesus. Well, he's got to duplicate a generation at the Babylonian exile to get that. Well, he's doing it for theological purposes. He's using numbers. Number 14 is a specific number. 14 times three is a very, another very important number for the Jews, so 42. Uh, so he's using it for theological uh, messaging. So very easy to sort that out is that genealogies could be used for theological messaging. So they could fudge the numbers occasionally to get there. And they also would have gaps in there. Richard Hess makes a pretty good argument that the, genes that the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 have gaps, um, as well as genealogies later in, throughout the Bible. They just had gaps. That was not a big deal. I mean, they just would use it to shorten things up and save some space, I guess you could suppose. But I mean, we find gaps throughout genealogies. It should not be much of an issue. So You've mentioned a couple of times how these Greco-Roman biographies, as well as other works, they show they have they do show some contradictions in the same way that scholars say that that Scripture does. So, talk a little bit about about how those show up in there and why we don't consider those to be unreliable the same way that they object Scripture being unreliable when the same thing's happening in both. Well, because that's just simply how eyewitness testimony comes about. I mean, so so uh, Gilbert Gara, uh, Garaham, in his book Guide to Historical Methods, says almost any critical history that discusses the evidence for important statements will furnish examples of discrepant or contradictory accounts and the attempts which are made to reconcile them. Basically, 
eyewitness testimony, nine times out of 10, is not going to be exact details. That's just what happens. A popular example you can find right now, if you go to Netflix, watch Unsolved Mysteries, episode two, the uh, special agent on the case, Mitchell Posey of the Bureau of Investigation, notes that of this one case, one witness saw a blue Chevy Lumina in a woman with shoulder length hair. A second witness saw a blue, a blue Ford Taurus or a Malibu and a man with shoulder length hair. And he says, and I quote, these witnesses are credible because they essentially saw the same thing and are totally independent of each other. Well, wait a minute. They have contradictions. Shouldn't he throw them out? No, because that's not how eyewitness testimonies uh, are actually ever uh, found or discovered. They always contain differences because people are different. People are going to notice different things and whatnot. Uh, so I, uh, attorney Milton Kellner, who's, writ- who's writ- written and taught on um, eyewitness testimony in a court of law, he says in the Florida Bar Journal in June 1981, conflicting testimony is rarely the result of intentional falsehoods, but is usually caused by honest differences of observation and recall. So contradictions or alleged contradictions happen all the time in eyewitness testimony. In fact, it's expected to happen. Uh, he, also, he also goes on the note, Kellner note, notes that if you have accounts, you get witnesses on the stand and they are basically saying the same thing. That's a sign they were coached to say that. If you're going to say the exact same story with the exact same line, someone got you in a room and said, here's your story, here's what you're going to say, step-by-step process. That's not a real eyewitness testimony. Well, ironically, what do the Gospels give us? Well, there's contradictions. There's differences in how things are reported. That seems to better match what we would expect from eyewitness testimony instead of it all just reading as the exact same thing. So the point that you're making here is that eyewitness testimonies are mainly based or essentially based off of perception rather than trying to get every detail snow white clean perfect and it's just every person is standing in a different spot when they're witnessing something so their perception might be different as well it will be different and so that's the point that you're making is is that is that we can't expect everything to be the same because we don't always see the same things yeah and just to sum it all up from the book uh from the book from memory to history i believe it's on page 76 they say, rarely is one single informant able to recount all details surrounding a specific event of years ago. But when enough people are interviewed, trends, de- trends develop, patterns unfold, and truth emerges. Divergent accounts are not necessarily in disagreement with each other, although they may sometimes seem to be on the surface. So, I mean, you would expect eyewitness testimony to have contradictions or differences. And surprisingly, when it comes to the Gospels, in a lot of ways, it's very easy to harmonize a lot of them. So it's just probably differences, not necessarily contradictions. So in dealing with these eyewitness testimonies in relation to the Gospels, we should expect contradictions. Is there anything else that that we should expect from the Gospels uh, in this context of eyewitness testimony? Well, we should expect different theological motives. Uh, Matthew may want to highlight certain things to hit certain points he wants to get to, certain different things are going to stand out to John or the sources Luke relied upon. That's just going to be expected. You're also going to expect difference in chronological aspects because not everyone is going to remember everything in the exact same order because based on the way different things stand out, they may reorganize things based on what they, uh, based on what they're looking for. I mean, this is, it's, it's interesting because the gospels seem to really match well with how eyewitness testimonies come about in modern events. There are differences they will sometimes order things different. I fail to see how this is a pretty big problem. Yeah, I agree. Uh, 
we can't expect, I mean, I, for things to be the exact same in the exact same order in the Gospels would basically just to be to have four Gospels saying the same thing. So we wouldn't even really need but one of them. Um, four of them gives us four different, entire different um, approaches to how we can see Jesus. And none of them contradict, but instead just complement each other and see him in four different yeah. angles, which is really cool. I mean, but let's take a quick one really, really fast. One of Bartman's favorites. He thinks that John says that, Jesus was crucified on a different day than the synoptics because it, it seems to say that in like John 19, 14, that uh, this was just before the Passover meal. Okay. But if you read a little further in John past John 19, 14, John goes on the note, it's the day of preparation for the Sabbath. That's why the bodies cannot be left on the cross. So sure. John 19, 14, he says it was the day of preparation of the Passover or for the Passover, but he's probably talking about the Passover week and talking about the day of preparation. Friday tended to be called the day of preparation because people were preparing for Saturday, the Sabbath. And he's talking about Passover week and the Friday day of preparation uh, that happened during that Passover week. He's not talking about the day of preparation for the Passover feast, feast on Thursday. So if you just read past John a little bit further, you can see John is clearly talking about how it, Jesus was crucified on Friday. He doesn't actually contradict the synoptics. And that's one of the ones that just boggles my mind because I'll even hear Christian scholars agree with Armin on that one. And I'm just like, but how? It, it's Just read the rest of John. Read the context. <laughs> I've learned a lot about context uh, here in my Bible classes. I actually had a Bible interpretation class, which was nothing but just context terms, meaning <laughs> every day is what we heard. Um, the Gospels have two authors who are actual eyewitnesses of Jesus and two who are not. So allegedly, yeah, that's the argument that conservative scholars make. Yeah, people may say that we should only take into account the contradictions of Matthew and John, the two who are actual eyewitnesses, and that Mark and Luke more than likely have things that are actually wrong because they weren't actual eyewitnesses. How can we uh, depend on Mark and Luke? Well, I would agree with scholars like Keener and Lacona that Matthew and Luke are using Mark as a source. I don't see that as much of a problem because the tradition is that Mark wrote down a sermon from Peter, or he was writing down what Peter told him, or hearing Peter speak kind of thing. Ma Peter was very close to Jesus, closer than Matthew was. If I'm going to write a biography of my father, and my mother wrote a shorter biography, I might use that as my source, because, you know, she knew my father, she knows my father better than I know. So that's not a problem. I don't, I, Mark, I see Matthew is doing good historical work using Mark as a source. And then he's, he adds another 50% to his document. He's probably using something like Q or some other earlier traditions as well. But yeah, I, I would, I mean, I think that's very good on him. It shows that they weren't just making things up. They were using sources they had available to them uh, when it comes to Matthew and Luke. Uh, so when it comes to the contradictions between Matthew and John, again, a lot of that can be easily harmonized. John is probably writing more topographically. Matthew is doing some topographical changes along the way as well. Um, John is going to highlight certain things that are going to stick out to him. Matthew is going to highlight things that are going to stick out to him. I don't know if there's any real hardcore contradictions. I mean, if that's the case, they're so minor, it doesn't even really affect the text that much. Yeah, there's there's no meaning that's changed. There's no message that's changed. Yeah, I, I there's agree. No, there's no theology that has changed, and the general gist is still there. No doctrine. I, maybe. I yeah, there's no doctrinal changes. And again, I'm I, ever since I've read Lacon, like, like Mike Lacona's book, Why There Are Difference in the, Differences in the Gospels, I'm a lot more open to there possibly being contradictions based on how we understand ancient Greco-Roman biographies. Of course, I think harmonization should come because of the principle of charity, but if you can't harmonize it, sure, whatever. But I'm a lot less worried about that kind of stuff because just for the same reason there might be an error 
in Josephus in certain places. That doesn't mean the whole account is an error. There still is a lot of good historical information in Josephus. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned a, a few minutes ago that Matthew could have gotten his uh, other 50% or at least some of it from Q. For the ones who don't know, can you explain what Q is? So it, Q is a hypothetical early source that Matthew and Luke would have used. There would have been sayings of Jesus, maybe some events in there. Uh, so it's just been like a list of different sayings. It might be what Papias is referring to, early church father, when he talks about how Matthew wrote the Logia in a language of the Hebrews. He might be referring to early sayings of Jesus that were later put together into the Gospels. So it's not an actual um, set material published work. It's more it's, of it, just what people knew about the tradition of the Old Testament. Not, I tend to think it's either notes that Matthew had while he was traveling with Jesus, or it's just references to early oral traditions. It was, it was a shared oral tradition among the early Christians, and that's what Q is. It doesn't necessarily have to be a written doc. But if it, if it was, it could have been notes that Matthew took while he was traveling around with Jesus. Okay, and Matthew and Luke both could have used other sources, just like other eyewitnesses. And well, I mean, like Luke tells us that he does. Luke opens his gospel by saying he's relying on all these different sources. And we know one of the sources was, was Mark. That's perfectly fine. It shows that Luke was actually going on uh, sources and not just making things up. He really was trying to get to the truth in his gospel and not just concocting things wholeheartedly. He was going on what earlier sources before him had to say. Well, it sounds to me like the gospels despite whatever um, alleged contradictions they might have, are very reliable in what they're saying and what they're teaching and what they're claiming. Um, is there any significant contradictions in the Pauline epistles or, or uh, well, sure. other there, smaller books? I mean, sure, those come up. I mean, some will try to say that the reason we can't trust like First Timothy or Second Timothy is because the theology is different. But again, a lot of those contradictions are surface level. When you start to dive into a lot of what they're saying, the arguments tend to fall apart because they're they're trying to take one very specific interpretation of Paul's words and run wild with it. Whereas, given the principle of charity, these are very easy to harmonize. Again, just because like we're going to harmonize Polybius and Livy if we're able to, we should do the same when it comes to the New Testament doc. That's employing the principle of charity. That's the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. For some reason, that doesn't seem to be the case. To, to quote Craig Keener, traditional skepticism and fundamental, fundamentalist approaches to the Gospels have generally committed to the same error, judging the Gospels by a standard foreign to their own genre. If, if we actually start looking in the context of the genres they're writing, it, a lot of these alleged contradictions dissipate. Awesome. I, I agree with you on that. All right, we're thankful for Michael Jones and what he had to say to us today about Bible contradictions and eyewitness testimonies with the Gospels. I think he answered a lot of questions in light of of objections that people have um, and what they bring up today. Now, I know this was a longer episode, and I'm trying to keep them about 35, 40 minutes in that range. Of course, some of them might be less than that. I, I'm not shooting for 35, but um, if one ends up being 20 or, or 30, I'm fine with that too. I'm just really trying to keep them under 40, so I don't want to put this one into a two-part episode and have three multiple-part episodes in a row because the episode after this one is going to be a two-part episode as well. It's going to be with Dr. Lynn Kohick from Denver Seminary in Denver, Colorado, and Christian Padilla from Beeson Divinity School. We're going to have two separate parts for this one episode, and that's why I didn't want to take two parts out of this one as well. Now, I know you're probably thinking, why not just have 
two separate episodes if it's going to be with two separate guests, and that's fair. But it's because of what they're going to be talking about. They're going to be talking about women's roles and the influence of Christianity throughout history and women in ministry today and what that looks like. And they complement each other so well, I wanted to make them into one episode, but just two parts, each one covering a separate part. We're going to look at that because there's a lot of misconceptions about what that looked like and its influence in the way that women are sometimes treated or viewed in context of vocational ministry. So be looking forward to hearing from Dr. Kovic, who will be covering women's roles in the influence of Christianity throughout history, and Christian Padilla, who will be talking about women in ministry today. That's just a little bit about what's going to be going on in the future, so so stick around for that and be sure to tune in for that as well. Okay, guys, we're out of time this week, but I hope that you come back next time in two weeks and join us as we talk about women's influence in the roles of Christianity today. Feel free to email me at defendingchristianitypodcast at gmail.com with questions or anything that you might want to share. Thank you for listening. I'm Levi Dade, your host, and this is Defending Christianity Podcast. See you guys next time.